Namo tassa bhagavato rato samma Sambhutasa namo tassa bhagavato rato samma Sambhutasa namo tassa bhagavato rato samma Sambhutasa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami So some radical um, changes that can be have to be borne in mind when considering the Buddha's teaching, and um, though it sounds kind of theoretical or not to the point, but the average person assumes or works on the basis that they are a person having experiences, experiences happen to them. Um, they see, they feel, they think they are afflicted by sensations and feelings, memories and um, moods Uh, that's the way they experience it and they're trying to actually get the right or comfortable set of experiences to move into and also to have happen and also to hold on to get the right kit and get the right, good enough quality of agreeable experiences and be able to manage one's life. This is the average person's intention. And, um, yeah, it's very partial. Some people get something extremely uncomfortable for some people. And for all people, it's very much limited by the fragility of circumstances, Changes, ups and downs, sickness, health, separation from the loved, association with dislike, and death, apart from anything else. <laughs> and so the average person thinks, well, what are you going to do about this? You know, uh, can you get past that? So is there some experience one could have that would actually get one out of that? Yeah, so we can believe in another world, heaven, some other place we could go to, some spiritual place we could go to, and next life or whatever, where these things would line up. But actually, the, the Buddha looked more deeply at what what is is happening. and said, actually, the you know, fundamentally, the idea of myself having some kind of experience is already wrong. There's no, nobody having an experience, there's just experience. And experience creates a sense of a person having an experience. But actually, more fundamentally that, there is the unrolling of conditions and causes. And one of the <clears throat> fundamental features of this ongoing flow of conditions and causes is generates or some of them generate the sense of a separate self who has them, has sights and sounds and touches and so on, has a future, has a past, 
has beliefs and views, um, has friends and neighbours and enemies. This particular perspective, self, is always going to be conflicted and associated with loss, suffering. And he says, you know, you don't, it doesn't have to be that way, radically. Because without having to kind of uh, adopt a set of beliefs, try to look more clearly into who is experiencing things, who does things. And you can see there are fundamentally three particular win, uh, aspects of that. The aspect we call I, the doer, you know, the aimer, I, kind of the subject of an, of an action. And we look into who that is, and you try to, what is that? Directly experienced. It's a movement, isn't it? It's uh, an interest. It's uh, an impulse. It's uh, wavering. It's uh, doubting. It's something that's essentially a condition. Changeable condition in the eye. Now, who is that? Because anyway, we we can kind of most immediately we say, "Well, I'm a man," or "I'm a no." Well, how how male is a thought? How male is hunger? No, 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 that's not it. I'm a human. Well, how human is a feeling? Is pain human? No, it's just pain, isn't it? Pleasure human? No. Which is there you? more you just look into that, you see that really the sense of I is just a notion that's associated with particular triggers for action. And the other one is me. Me is the thing that things happen to. Things happen to me. People talk to me it rains on me, uh, diseases happen to me, um, pleasant experiences happen to me. Who's that? Is it something lasting? Something solid? Something substantial? It's like a melting snowflake, isn't it? Things happen to what? They happen to the mind, you could say, to my awareness, to sensitivity to a body to and how how much is that is it always a memory it's a mind state it's a it's changing and shifting third aspect myself something permanent here i am again me myself same old me Myself. This is who I am, this is myself. Some kind of residuum. What's that? <laughs> Shifts and changes, doesn't it? Yeah. We can think it. Myself, my label, my identity, my name, my number. What's that? As a direct experience. Myself is what? 
And as you examine it and look into that, begin to prune away some of the layers, you recognize there's a certain heaviness there. Um, mm, Stuck. Limitation. A layer, a residual quality. Um, Is that a person? It may be marked with a sense of fatality, I'm always like this, or limitation, I can never be this, I'm always this way, myself is like this. It's not really a person, is it? It's a particular mood or state of mind. Yet we can build notions around these, this position. This is what I am, this is all I can be, I've got to be this, I will be this tomorrow. Tomorrow I will be this, and years time I'll be that. You sure? Guaranteed? I always was this, were you? When you were nine, were you this? When you were asleep, were you this? When you were taking a shower, were you this? When you were picking roses, were you this? Very um, notional. And yet our life is so often configured around these three positions. I, me, myself. All of them having no final, ultimate identity, stability, security, happiness, (laughs) clarity. (laughs) More accurately, what is said is, well, I is the movement of what's called karma, action, intentionality, jitana. Jitana is a kind of impulse energy that uh, drives or lifts or propels a mind state. Yeah, that happens, definitely. And it shifts, doesn't it? From clear to happy to irritable to confused, to wanting, not wanting, feeling overwhelmed. It's a shifting thing. It's a trajectory. This, it's not. There's nothing there. Something. Something very significant is there. Very significant, because that trigger, that I, which we've seen, actually is something that can be changed. You can say no to it, or yes to it, or go this way or that way, you can say something like, don't act upon that, you can say something like, calm that down, you can say, there can be some way of negotiating with that trajectory, that impulse. So it's a very crucial factor, but because it's not I, it means it's subject to change, to intelligent input, to moderation, to training, because what that I, how that I acts, very much affects what myself is experienced as. Myself is the residuum, the results of what I hold on to, what I incline towards, what I give attention to, what I absorb into, what I see what I think, what I incline towards, becomes very much a fundamental, foundational quality for myself. 
and even for the sense of me. Because where I go, what I incline towards will definitely affect what happens to this one, to this mind's chitta. So, just this is what, how experience happens, how it's rolling on, how it's changing all the time through these particular qualities, these conditions. Now, conditions themselves is the word, condition is the word, it means nothing is really a thing anymore. Everything, we're called dhammas. And dhammas are not really things at all in terms of fixed, finite entities. Dhammas are just moments of direct experience where conditions blend, such as to see something requires a physical eye, an eyeball, uh, eye consciousness, an object and probably to apprehend it requires a mind to, under, to apprehend what's, what it means what it, so the very sense of seeing something is really a coming together of certain fundamental qualities or conditions consciousness uh, material, material object and a sense organ so essentially nothing fundamentally exists it's just constant play of factors themselves are changeable the physical eyeball is changeable it deteriorates it changes in the way of perceiving it changes for example when we're only two years old you can see the same things as an adult but you can't understand what a kettle is or a fridge or a computer or a car you see it but you don't know what it is so the world very much changes and is conditioned by one's consciousness, which changes. Obviously, physical objects themselves are subject to change. They deteriorate, they rise and pass. People create new things. You know, we would, nowadays you probably wouldn't know what an astrolabe is. <laughs> Somebody shows you an astrolabe, you wouldn't know what it was. Probably don't even know what the word means. <laughs> yeah. So, what occurs in nature, what occurs in the, in the physical world is also subject to change. So in this constant flux of ephemeral experiencing in which neither the subject nor the object nor even the way of experiencing, none of that is solid. It's all just fluidities playing with each other. And this is the, perce- this is the perspective of the the Buddha. <laughs> so where do you take a stand? You know, how do you find? What are you going to do? <laughs> uh, now, with all this, one of the important things to recognise is that the of all the conditions that are occurring, the primary human condition that we all have is called wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to discern something. And that's built into any, any consciousness. It has some kind of wisdom. You know, consciousness, we can see something, we can apprehend what it is, we can, there can be a knowing of it. There can be, and therefore there can be decisions made about it. You know, this is pleasant. This is, we can learn something. We can learn this is pleasant, agreeable, unpleasant, uh, hard, soft, green, yellow, 
and so on. So you have, with consciousness, there's always some degree of wisdom. But consciousness has a snag in that fundamentally consciousness always differentiates the subject from the object, as if the subject could be separate from what it perceives. So the one way in which uh, the teaching is expressed is that wisdom has to be developed and consciousness has to be understood. In some way they're the same, wisdom and consciousness, where there's wisdom there's consciousness, where there's consciousness there's wisdom, but wisdom, how they're separate, is wisdom you'll need to develop it, consciousness you won't need to understand. This is a kind of a magic show which appears to present a world out there which is relatively fixed and a person in here who's relatively fixed. And this is not the case at all. Based upon that premise that there's somebody in here who's relatively fixed for a certain period of time and there's something out there sets up the motivation of desire. I want that. Or aversion, I don't like that. Or fear, I've got to get away from that. And this is the way that consciousness is, for very good reasons, because, you know, in some way sentient life depends upon those three messages. You see a banana, eat it. You see a tiger, run away from it. You see a man with a club, bash him. <laughs> you know, that, that's the deal, isn't it? Once you get born into this particular paradigm. So consciousness does its job around that particular game, sentient being game. But it doesn't work for liberation. That is, there's not something we can have, some state we can attain, uh, some place we can go to where this ongoing, restless, unsatisfactory experience can come to an end, can be resolved. And yet it can be resolved through wisdom. Wisdom and the other primary factor that we all have is effort. We definitely make efforts to search for our welfare, our well-being. We make efforts to protect ourselves, to secure ourselves, to find agreeable partners, and so on. We make, definitely make effort. This is, again, natural. Yeah. So any teaching that says there's no effort required is, cannot be really associated with human beings. Human beings always make effort. Yeah. Even to stand up requires effort. Even to listen to a talk requires effort. Some sense of one applies. And the theme is you apply yourself in order to create a proper foundation for wisdom. And you use wisdom to turn your energies in the right way. And these two factors particularly are the ongoing qualities that the I, the skillful person, seeks to use in their lives in order to, and can use in order to bring around the cessation of dukkha, of suffering, unsatisfactoriness, conflict, confusion, fear. Good karma. Another potent word, karma, action. 
And of course, uh, karma can be misunderstood, but karma primarily begins with this quality of chitana or intentionality as a mental factor which drives thoughts, attitudes, intentions, and drives body, physical actions, and drives our speech. But it stems from the mind. Whether it happens through the body or speech, stems in the mind. And so, you know, and you kind of consider that, really, because it's happening all the time. You know, we don't have to uh, go anywhere, particularly, in order to see this. But so often we do need to have that seed of understanding placed for our reflection. To say, you know, every, every moment counts, because every moment I do something. I think, I wonder, I hope, I argue, I try, I speculate, I drift off. It's happening all the time. Hmm. So because of this, you know, one really has very little choice <laughs> in some respect. Since you're on a, really on a, constantly on a rocking boat, you're going to steer it, keep it afloat, take it to the harbour. And it's happening all the time. So what do you base? What do you base it on? Using wisdom, what, what's your fundamental prerogative got to be? Probably for most people, yeah, is renunciation. <laughs> is necessary. It means we have to limit the amount of stuff we're doing and getting involved with in order to get enough clarity because otherwise the mind just gets swamped with too much stuff to handle. You can't get the kind of clarity without simplifying because the mind just gets overwhelmed with too many things to think about, too many things to handle, too many irons in the fire, too much stuff going on, too many balls to juggle. You just, how can you ever really get any uh, deep clarity if the mind is not, can't sit still long enough to be able to contemplate how things are? Hmm? It's always the chetana, the impulse, is always to keep dealing with stuff, creating new stuff, remembering something, planning something, figuring something out, shifting. Yeah. And just notice how the, you know, the more you just look around, you see the more people get busy doing stuff, you recognize this person can have less time for you, less clarity, yeah less spaciousness, less composure, probably less trustworthy, because they just don't have the time to give quality attention to things. This is just something you can check out yourself. 
And in your own mind, when you've got so much stuff going on, again, less time for other people, less time to really look into your own mind and heart. And there's less time to meditate. So meditation essentially is based on renunciation. I mean, these are not hair shirt stuff. It means just the ability to simplify, to prune, to say less, less is better. If I can get a little less going on, that's better. (laughs) Because, you know, rather than more. And this already is a kind of transformative attitude. Because the average unawakened being always assumes, well, have another, have more, have a new, have a fresh something or the other. Get more experiences. Say, no, no, actually, less will be better because you know where more goes. More goes to more planning, more organizing, more figuring, more buying, more storing, more changing, more fixing, more cleaning, more maintenance, (laughs) more things to lose, more insurance. (laughs) And less what? Less awareness, less clarity, less composure, less ability to find space, time, openness, to go deeper. So this is very radical transformation, and it's necessary. If one really seeks one's welfare, if one really seeks one's welfare, there's got to be less, that, that inclination. And a certain quality of commitment to, to otherwise the mind's not going to get steady. If you don't have that, this is what we do, and the ability to just say no, stop, no, 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 <laughs> stop. <laughs> it's really quite simple when it comes down to the the, the nitty-gritty of it. A lot of meditation is just about saying, no. Not in an angrier, just no. Not relevant, no. No, put it aside. What? Not, no, not now. Not necessary. No. Good sati, mindfulness. To be able to bear something in mind means you have to keep shielding all the various other kinds of input that you want to keep coming in. Because the input comes when you close your eyes and sit down. Where's it coming from? It's coming from this residuum called myself. Yeah. So, it, and it comes from myself, it sounds like me. It's got my beliefs in it, my concerns, my attitudes, my grievances, my attitudes about myself. My sense of, I can't do this, why bother? My sense of, well, yeah, but another day, maybe somebody else. My sense of, well, I'm only this, that, and the other. That. And that, myself, becomes the major obstacle in meditation. Because it always sets the benchmark, like, oh, this is all you can do. This is who you are. You've got all these, this is what your life is about. You are this. 
and it it already acts as a brake and a damper on 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 practice. You've got to be quite careful. If you seek your own welfare, you've really got to train yourself, quite literally. Yeah, and that training is varied, but we might say the other qualities of what are called the three fundamental attitudes, one is renunciation, one is goodwill. Non-harming. And another one is non-dismissiveness or non-cruelty. Not. And when you look into myself, so much of it could be compounded with some sense of um, negativity. Complaining about oneself, um, irritating with oneself, feeling one hasn't got enough, feeling one isn't good enough, feeling one myself is inadequate. Yeah. If you take an average person, say, well, just sit still, even comfortably, in a chair, you know. No physical hardship, just sit still relatively comfortably, not rigid still, but quiet still for half an hour without any particular input. No radio, no television, no screens, no books, no music, nobody talking, just sit there. This would be easy, shouldn't it? Have a break. How long do you think they'll last? Without, oh, something I've got to, oh no, yeah, it's interesting, but right now I've got something else I need to do. All these terrible thoughts came up. These memories happened. Somebody telling me an experiment they did it in America a couple of years ago. They asked people 15 minutes to sit, just sit in a chair, not meditate, just sit there. And uh, they could just sit there with no input, or they could push a button that would give them an electric shock, like 10 volts, a little prick. Most people would push that button several times rather than just sit there. <laughs> just have something happening that was not myself. <laughs> Somebody did it over 90 times in 15 minutes. Because <laughs> just being with oneself is just too anxious, depressed, worried. And just give me a hit. Not pleasant, but unpleasant feeling. Knew it was going to be unpleasant. Hit that button. Because to be with myself is just too uncomfortable, too abysmal, too full of doubt, too full of grievances, grudges, problems, too critical, too judgmental, too annihilationist, too despairing towards myself. This is the residuum of, uh, of an I that has not been direct, carefully directed. Directed towards putting effort into things that give very little, very little good result, just the brief blur of happiness or something, and then no good result. So what's the result of that? If one's attention, one's energies are constantly going to, into actions that don't give full fruition. Must be something wrong with me. 
failed again, didn't get it. Myself is an unsatisfied creature. A creature that begins to experience itself after a while as I've been 20 years and I still haven't got it. I've been 25, I've been 30 years and I haven't got it. I can't do it. There's something wrong with me. Yeah. And all the, the times which the me sense got hurt by something, which it does. That becomes myself too. He insulted me. She swore at me. They dumped me. They left me. They weren't what I wanted them to be. All that gets to be myself as well. So myself becomes this kind of seething hotbed of grumbling, often sad uh, experiences to be with it. Hmm. So, you know, meditation is no small matter, really. And uh, you can see that the many systems and there are in meditation, and some are extremely um, engineered. Mm. Actually, the Buddha's meditation was relatively simple in some ways. It didn't have a lot of techniques in it. Uh, but it did have a lot of emphasis on renunciation, uh, on uh, integrating it into life. It wasn't like a do a weekend or a 10 day job where you, you've got something to do, you've got a target to get to, you've got some particular system you can get away at, and you can come at the end, you did it. You know, you got come out with a gold star, a silver or bronze, you definitely got somewhere in that one. And you became something. And you can sign up for another one. And yeah, you can get particular experiences with them. Experiences, say, of some calm, some clarity, some refinement. And then when you come out of it, off the retreat, off the that, then what? Unless this uh, process of meditation is integrated, unless we use meditation to really see, yeah, that even if you do a retreat, even if you're not very good at it, and just spend a week or so having less to do and less input, and you've got something there to keep you occupied enough to not go into <laughs> restlessness and despair <laughs> or obsessions of some kind or another. Yeah, you'll benefit. But it's not because of the technique, it's basically because of the renunciation that was there. That the things you didn't do were as significant as the things you did do. The, the, the input that you didn't have was part of the practice. Once you understand this, you begin to see, yeah, this is now a trajectory for life, isn't it? Renunciation, simplifying, and commitment. And also, you begin to see, don't believe in I am. This is the one you've really got to be careful about. This is the one that's got doom written on it. (laughs) 
this is the one that's got the limitation, because that's what it is. It's a kind of a, an unresolved residue. It's not, it's the thing you want to be very clear about, not use as the basis for future action. The basis for future action, you begin to recognize, has got to be based on goodwill towards myself, towards others, uh, harmlessness towards myself, towards others. Harmlessness, even in terms of refining it down to speech. Don't say something you th- you, that you know that you're aiming to kind of tweak somebody, poke somebody, put somebody down, prove you're superior to them, shove them off, yeah? tell them where they're at, make them... F- don't do that. And also don't do it to yourself. Just reduce the cutting remarks, the clever cynicism, the uh, off-handed innuendos, just tidying speech. Tidy speech, you begin to look into the way you think about people because the two are very closely related and you recognize even to hold a harmful thought, a dismissive thought, a stereotyping thought, oh, that's just a, she's one of those. Even that is going to cause you pain and others pain and will lay down a residue of intolerance, indifference, that it's going to cause, generate suffering. In fact, we don't really need to know how anybody else is. What we need to know Focus clearly is the only thing that one can be responsible for is just what I think, what I do, what my attitude is, what my intentionality is. Got some say over that. How other people are going to be, very, very confusing. Not necessarily a very helpful perspective. You look on that, you're going to be missing the point. You want to be to know there are people who you can develop renunciation with, who you can develop morality with, who you can develop meditation with. You want to know that. Are these people who also encourage simplicity, also encourage harmlessness, also encourage this domain of Dhamma. That's what you want to know. (laughs) The rest of it, yeah, all you need to know is this person also, this being also has a myself that's causing them problems. (laughs) Because of that, they're liable to be acting upon old karmic patterns. Old karmic patterns essentially come down to my attitudes, my views, my biases, my perceptions, my way I assess things. are going to be through myself. Things I have learned, things that have established for me. And yeah, we all have that. What I particularly enjoy or like. Or or I find humorous, or interesting, or, or whatever. That's 
myself. That's the residuum. And we start to sense, yeah, that's true. I don't want to go into that, make that a foundation. Because I'll just get more entrenched in me, myself, and I am. And where's that going to go? More obsessed in that, more fixated upon that, more judging myself and others on that. So someone who inclines towards their welfare seeks to be a stranger to themselves. What is this? They seek to go outside their envelope, outside their box, outside their knownness. They seek to be with things, qualities that they don't really know much about, or they seek to have their views checked, looked at. In fact, strange enough, uh, the more one understands this process, you tend to seek other people to reflect off. Not necessarily to completely agree with, but see, this person, she, he, is okay, but he sees it very differently. That's good. (laughs) As long as that seeing is held as just this is a viewpoint, this is not some ultimate truth, then, oh, oh, look at that, we're different. Then we begin to recognize that nobody... No perception is ultimately true or right. They're all, well, what handling of perceptions, what handling of different viewpoints, what handling of attitudes between three or four people, two or three people, what what actually brings about a sense that we all feel, ah, okay, that's okay. Yeah, I can be with that. I can also not have to have it my way. I can let go. Great, because then that doesn't become myself. That doesn't become my territory. That doesn't become my thing that I've got. Doesn't become my success story. Doesn't become my my way. I got it this way, the way I wanted it. Because if it does, then investment, isn't there? The only thing, I think, actually Oscar Wilde said, the only thing worse than not getting what you want is getting what you want. (laughs) Not getting what you want is frustrating. Getting what you want is deluding. (laughs) Because you think, oh, now I want more of it. And so on. So reflect on conditions. When one begins to see that essentially I'm not a person trying to gain physical territory, emotional territory, psychological territory, be famous, be successful, be the leader, be the most important, be the one who gets everything, goes his way or her way. I don't want that. That's dangerous. 
I want to be understanding these are conditions and causes that can arise and pass and there's no holding on or rejection of them. So this is the aim, to be a person of nothing. So that we, there's a freedom from experience. Just consider it. How much of what you experience can you really feel is exactly the way you satisfactory for you? That takes no stress. Yeah. That causes no conflict with other people. How much how much of your experience can you say is really just steady, serene, exactly rested? Hmm? Any percentages? Any double figures? Single figures? Anybody got more than zero? <laughs> Not that things are miserable, but they're okay for a while, and it's good enough, and I can't complain, I can manage that. It's true. I can manage it. I can be okay with it. doesn't mean that I make it okay by shrugging, by accepting by putting up with by you know holding on to it by itself it requires constant holding managing chain fixing cleaning adopting adapting convincing placating yeah so renunciation being able to to renounce experience, which doesn't mean to abolish it. It means experience can be happening and there's that isn't that tenacious searching for something within that. This is the key to meditation. In fact, meditation could be some basically very simple. Finding enough of a theme, like breathing in and out, or sitting or walking, where you can say just this and begin to simplify everything else. Yeah. Look into your complex uh, thought system and simplify it. How do you do that? You look at a whole train of thought running through. Using wisdom, what does this train of thought mean? Where's it going? What's it about? What's its energy? Well, some of it is just restless. Some of it is wanting. Some of it is planning. Some of it is remembering. Some of it is fancying. Some of it is rejecting. Some of it is feeling its stirrings of upset. So when you prune it down to the one thing that's really the point then you, oh you've reduced you reduce and how is that quality of feeling disappointed feeling uh, wanting something rejecting something how is that how does it feel how is it, what's happening and then this is your meditation theme that is you practice with that you come into your body you breathe in and out with that 
if you can develop goodwill towards yourself with that, it loosens the hold of these fundamental emotional tendencies, which is where the I am springs from. The unresolved jumping springs from that. Meditation. Meditation to get to the roots of the mind, you simplify, clarify, you steady in order to understand experience. This is how wisdom and energy and effort can be rightly directed and give the highest results. Offer this for your reflection this evening. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>